0: Well, today we are beginning a new sermon series titled Fridgeworthy, Encouraging Truths for Everyday Life, and I want to say just a couple of things, a few things I guess I should say, about the series as we uh, get started here. Uh, As I've shared in the weeks when we've promoted the series, the title comes from something that I've often said over the years. Many times when preaching on a particularly difficult or challenging passage of scripture, I've joked that this is not the kind of verse that you put on your refrigerator. For example, I doubt that too many people have ever placed Luke 1.33 on their fridge. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Uh, I doubt that anyone has ever placed Matthew 7.21 on their fridge. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That probably hasn't made it on too many uh, refrigerators. Those are truth-packed verses. They just are not the kind that people tend to put on their refrigerator. So this series is about the kind of verses that people do put on their refrigerator. I also realize that some of you tightly wound people may object to the notion that that only certain Bible verses are fridge-worthy. So please understand we're only using this term in the sense that I've already described it. These are the types of verses that people tend to place on their fridge, right on their bathroom mirror, cross-stitch into a pillow, or whatever else people might do with encouraging Bible verses. Also, I want you to know, I recognize it's a little bit of a kitschy title, uh, but we are rolling with it anyway, all the way to the point of having a refrigerator on the stage for the entirety of the series. We may not have smoke and multicolored lights at the vineyard, but we do have a fridge (laughs) on the stage. So there you go. One final thing before we get to today's topic, I want to acknowledge that even with some of these fridge-worthy verses, we we don't actually, we we can't actually always get to the fridge-worthy part until we've been willing to engage with some verses that challenge how we think and how we live. And so often in Scripture, the path to an encouraging truth is one of challenging truth. So this series is going to be one of encouraging truths, but it's not going to be a string of inspirational quotes like you might see in the conference room of a of a business. You know, things like, believe you can and you're halfway there. Or... Uh, you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Uh, those are good thoughts, but the series won't be a constant string of inspirational quotes. It's a series of Bible-based encouragements. And there's one more thing that I actually want to mention before we get to today's topic. I want to show you what a properly stocked refrigerator should look like. Okay, I want to show you what a, what a well-stocked refrigerator looks like. First of all, I want you to know, notice that a well-stocked refrigerator is very neat. Okay, it's very neat. Okay, this is not how our refrigerator at home looks, but, but a refrigerator should be neat. And this refrigerator is stocked with all of the essentials of life. Okay, eggs, bacon, grape jam, Snickers, Reese's, peanut and regular plain M&M's, and then the most important thing for any refrigerator ever is Mexican soda, (laughs) Haritos, lime and pineapple flavor. If you have that, you have all you need. So let me ask you this, how many of you have never tasted Harito's Lime or Pineapple soft drinks? Oh, I don't have that many, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, how many of you would like to taste it? Okay, all right, there you go, there's pineapple for you, Tim Salt. you look like you should, there, there's lime for you. So please save those till after church. Don't don't be uh, popping the bottle cap on the back of the seats, please. And uh, we'll give some more of those away next week. All right. So this is the kind of thing that I think the cool churches describe as epic and off the chain, right? No, just just joking. just joking. All right, here we go. Going to start with a with a big term. Moralistic, therapeutic deism is a big term that describes how I believe most people in the United States and probably even most people in the entire world think about God and salvation. The term was first introduced by Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton in a book they wrote in 2005 titled Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. And the term was used to describe what these authors consider to be common spiritual beliefs among America's youth. I believe it describes the common spiritual beliefs not just of American youths, but of most people in the United States. What they believe about God and what they believe about salvation And unfortunately, I believe it also describes what way too many Christians believe about God and about salvation. Here's the combination of beliefs that Smith and Denton label as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die it seems to me that most people and again oftentimes even professing christians believe that being right with god being saved gaining eternal life is determined by being a good person by doing good things we we think that if we live lives that are generally good we're pretty nice we're fair to our fellow man then we think that we're going to be all right with God. Now, some people will actually say things like this, but even those who don't often think something like this. Well, you know, I think that I've done more good stuff in my life than bad stuff. So I think that I'll probably be okay when I see the big guy upstairs. It's sort of like we imagine that our life is being judged on a graph and one column of the graph is our bad deeds and the other column is our good deeds and as long as the good deeds graph is just a smidgen taller than the bad deeds uh, column uh, that we're going to be okay with God. And this uh, thought process isn't unique to us in our time and place. This has been something humans have thought for As long as there have been humans, it seems. In today's text that we're going to look at, Jesus' encounter with what we've come to know as the rich young ruler, lets us know that this issue of people thinking doing good is how they get right with God has been around for a really long time. This isn't something that's new to us. This is what uh, people thought at the time of Christ, uh, which this story shows. And so we're going to read Matthew 19, 16 through 26. I think it will be on the screen behind me. If you have your Bible and want to turn there quickly, you can do that. I'll read and you follow along as I do. Here's what we find. A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, Obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come. Follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. There's a, there's a put-on-the-fridge verse. With God all things are possible. And so we see in verse 16 that the young man has the same idea that Smith and Denton discovered in their research. And that is that good people go to heaven. The young man asked Jesus, teacher, what good thing must I do to enter eternal life? To get eternal life? It's, it's kind of like the salesperson who you know, is having a difficult time closing the sale. And they get to the point where they're like, so what do I have to do? To get your business. Uh, This is kind of what this young man is doing with Jesus. So what do I have to do, Jesus, to get eternal life? The young man believes that eternal life is available to him. He's convinced there's something that he has to do to get it. And he wants to know what that is. Like this rich young man in the story, most human beings, not all, but most I think... Believe that there is something after this present life. I think most human beings believe that. They just innately believe that there is something that lies beyond our present experience. They have a hunch that there is a God and and that God does have eternal life for people. And they want to know, what do I have to do to get it? Like the rich young man, people are willing to work for eternal life. Willing to do something to get it. Our performance-based culture sets us up to believe that we can earn anything and everything. It sets us up to believe that we have to earn eternal life. Think about some of the common things that we say in our culture, and in and of themselves, they're good things. We say things like, everything I've ever received in life, I've worked for. Well, it's great to have a good work ethic. We say things like, there's no free lunch. You get what you earn, that There's truth to that. That's, that's good to be, to be willing to work for what you get. We're fond of talking about pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which means earning our way, even though it's a completely nonsensical statement. Try pulling yourself up off the ground by your own bootstraps sometime. See how that goes. I have no idea where phrases like that come from. <laughs> Just grab hold of your shoe right now and just start pulling. See if you see if you can lift yourself off the ground. It's the oddest statement. I didn't hear it. He did it. Okay. <laughs> so these things, in and of themselves, what they're meant to communicate is fine, but it sets us up to believe that we have to learn, earn literally everything. Not only does our performance-based culture set us up to believe we have to earn eternal life, but our own sinful hearts set us up for this. The Bible tells us that our hearts are hopelessly dark and deceitful. But what do virtually all of us say about virtually everybody we ever meet? And what do most of us think about ourselves? Oh, she has a good heart. He has a good heart. Every time I hear that, I want to say, You don't know their heart. How are you making that determination? We don't know one another's hearts. In direct contradiction to what the Bible says, we all say, You know, most people are really pretty good. And God is shouting from heaven, No, they're not. I see it all. They're not. And since we decide that everyone is basically good and what God wants for people to have eternal life is to be basically good and to do good things, many people, whether they have ever heard the term or not, are moralistic, therapeutic deists. Even many Christians are actually moralistic, therapeutic deist rather than biblical Christians. And so let's consider Jesus. You're like, Brian, this is supposed to be encouraging. What what are you doing? All right, we'll get there, I promise. So let's consider Jesus' interaction with the rich young man and how he answers the young man's questions. And in doing so, we're going to find some really bad news for moralistic therapeutic deism, and then we're going to eventually get to the good news and the encouraging truths. The young man asks what he has to do to get eternal life, and Jesus responds, if you want to enter life, obey the commands. Now, on the surface, it looks like Jesus is affirming that there's something he has to do ...to get eternal life, but that's not actually what's going on here. Jesus is not implying that the man can be saved by doing, can be saved by keeping the commandments. What he was doing was attempting to use the law to bring conviction to the young man's heart. The young man was under the delusion that he could inherit eternal life by doing... So Jesus intends to reveal the futility of this way of thinking by appealing to the law. Because what is the purpose of the law but to lead us to the conclusion that we cannot keep it and we cannot please God on our own and that we need a Savior. And so the young man then asked what laws he needed to obey. And Jesus answered, don't murder Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. He dealt with all the ones that deal with how we interact with other people. And the young man responds, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now, in the sense that the young man had obeyed these commands consistent with the religious practices of the Jewish people at that time in history, he might very well be telling the truth. Remember, the Apostle Paul once said of himself that as for righteousness based on the law, that he had been faultless. However, for Jesus, his concern extends beyond what we do. It goes to the level of our hearts. He's not concerned with technical obedience or outward obedience to the commandments, but with a transformed heart from which obedience flows out. And Jesus knew that this young man was only offering outward obedience, technical obedience. William Barclay, a Bible commentator, theologian that I really find very helpful, he speculates that Jesus' inclusion of the commandment to honor father and mother, but notes that it's out of order within the commandments, he, he speculates that this is likely an example of how the young man was obeying the law in a technical sense while not actually being obedient to the spirit of God's commandments. And what he says about this is that the command to honor father and mother came with the understanding that adult children were supposed to provide for the physical needs of their aging parents if the aging parents needed such help. But what the Jewish people had done is they had constructed laws on top of God's laws, regulations on top of God's regulations. And what ended up happening is they obeyed the stuff that they constructed on top of God's law, but didn't actually obey God's law. And and so Barclay speculates that's what this young man has been doing. And, And so One of the things that the Jews had added on top of God's law is on top of this command to honor your father and mother, they had come up with a law that was called the law of Corban, whereby a person could set aside a certain portion of their wealth as being dedicated to the purposes of God, even though it hadn't actually been given to the purposes of God, but they could set it aside and say that is reserved for the work of God. And then they could avoid the responsibility that came with the commandment to honor their father and mother and take care of their physical needs. And so Barclay speculates that this young man may have become rich after leaving home and then forgotten about his parents or perhaps he was ashamed of his parents. And so by the law of Corbin, he was honoring the commandment according to the Jewish law, but he was disobeying the commandment of God. Now whether Barclay is right about this or not, what Jesus does is he totally exposes the young man with his answer to that question, what do I still lack? What do I still lack? If the honor and father honor father and mother part didn't get him, this next part did. Jesus answered, "If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come" and follow me. And we're told that when the young man heard this, quote, he went away sad because he had great wealth. What Jesus was doing here was exposing the young man's failure to love his neighbors himself, quite possibly exposing his failure to love his own parents as he loved himself. And so while he may have kept some technical commandments that had been placed on top of God's commandments, he actually had not kept the commandments of God. The young man's unwillingness to share his possessions, again, maybe even with his own parents, showed that he did not love his neighbor as himself. And Jesus exposed uh, exposed this in the young man for a very specific reason. And here's why. He was wanting to bring the young man to the point of conviction. Of conviction. He wanted to convince the young man That he could not receive eternal life by doing. Here's the way the young man should have responded at this point in his interaction with Jesus. He should have said, Lord, if that is what's required, then I have failed. I have not kept your law. I recognize that I am a sinner. And I now realize that it's futile for me. To think that I can earn eternal life through my own efforts. Jesus had moved the discussion from righteousness according to the law. That had made the young man so confident. And he had taken the young man to the inner place where his values were formed. And he basically told him that to have eternal life. He could not value anything above God himself. Jesus exposed the ruling God of the young man's life. For him it was wealth. And he said, you have to give up allegiance to that God if you want eternal life. And the young man went away sad because he wasn't willing to give up his wealth in order to gain eternal life. And in response to the young man leaving, Jesus used it as a teachable moment for his disciples And he shared some really sobering truth with them. And and these things that he said, these truths echo down through the past 2,000 years and they hit us as hard as they hit those people who heard them 2,000 years ago. Here's what he said. Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And now he's going to drive the point home. Again I tell you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so here's the bad news that we have to go through before we can get to the encouraging news. According to Jesus, it is easier for a camel. Picture it. This would have been a good illustration, but I already had the fridge, so I thought that was enough for for one Sunday. But, But picture it camel, eye of a needle. It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God and receive eternal life. And so many of us will be tempted to say this, doesn't apply to me because I'm certainly not rich. I'm sorry to burst your impression of yourself, but yes, you are rich. Those of us who have, are the mo, who, who are of the most modest means in this room live better than i don't know that was a guess, but probably ninety percent of everybody who has ever lived on planet Earth. we are rich, we are rich, and, and I don't mean this to be any kind of a. Uh, negative or political statement at all. I really don't. But but when you live in a country where one of the biggest challenges for people who are in poverty is obesity, you live in a rich country. I mean, that's a problem. But in much of the world, when people are poor, eating too much isn't the problem they have. And, and so we live in a rich place. You are rich by any historical, worldwide, objective standard compared to almost everyone who has ever lived on earth. But beyond that, Myron Augsburger points out that rich man can also be paraphrased properly as man of privilege. Man of privilege. And he points out, that Jesus could just, have, could just as easily have said that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a doctor, a lawyer, a bishop, a nurse, a teacher, a businessman to enter the kingdom of heaven and have eternal life. Any privilege, any ability anything that leads us to a place where we think that we can take care of ourselves and that we do not need God, that we are good and capable on our own, anything that does that places us in the company of those whom Jesus is saying it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for people like that to enter the kingdom of heaven and be saved. All right, so we have one more objection left. We may say, well, I guess that's true. But I remember one time hearing that Jesus didn't mean this literally, that the eye of the needle was actually a small door on the side of the city gates. And while it was hard for a camel to get through that door, it could be done if the camel kind of hunched down on its knees and sort of mm, awkwardly. (laughs) awkwardly crawled through the door so the point here is not that it's impossible it's just that it's really hard well i'm sorry but you you were misinformed i cannot find one reputable bible commentator who thinks that that is what jesus meant they all say that he used this outlandish picture This outlandish outlandish example for the specific reason of making the point that it is absolutely impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. A privileged person to enter the kingdom of heaven. A person who thinks they're good and capable in and of themselves to enter the kingdom of heaven. And of course we know this because Jesus actually said it. It's actually in the text. This is impossible. Yet we look for a loophole. Nope, not impossible. Just hard. It's just hard. Until a person comes to the place that the rich young ruler never came to. The place where you come to understand that you are incapable of keeping the law of God. And that your ability to keep the law of God, your inability to keep the law of God, brings you to a place of conviction and realization of your need of God. And until that realization leads you to the place where you'll give up all of your false gods for the one true God and the life that he offers, until you come to that place, Until you come to the place where you let go of the notion that you are good and that is how you get saved, you cannot receive eternal life. You just can't. As long as you hold on to the notion that you receive eternal life by doing, by the performance of good deeds, you are cut off from the eternal life that God offers The point of the story and the point of the entire Bible is that apart from Christ, you can't, I can't do anything to get eternal life. It is completely beyond our reach because we are not good and we have not kept God's commandments. Now we come to a fascinating reaction from Jesus' disciples. After Jesus told them how difficult it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, we're told that the disciples were astonished by this. They were astonished that it was difficult for a rich person to get to heaven. And so they asked, who then can possibly be saved? If the rich people can't be saved, how can any of us be saved? Now their reaction is difficult for us to understand. Because we increasingly live in a time where rich people are looked at with suspicion. A a narrative that seems to be gaining traction in our country is that if someone is rich, they had to have gotten that way by exploiting someone else. Doing something unfair. Taking something that didn't belong to them. And of course that can be true. But it's not always true. Sometimes people get rich because they do things really well. And that would be a good thing for us to keep a hold of, that understanding that sometimes people are rich because they did a lot of good stuff. At the time of Jesus, material prosperity was seen as the blessing of divine favor. The rich were not looked on with suspicion. They were looked on as receiving the blessings of God. And the Jewish people at the time didn't base that on nothing. They based it on scripture. Specifically Deuteronomy 28, where God promised that for all those who obey him that they would be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. You'll be blessed when you come in, you'll be blessed when you go out. Your crops will be blessed. Your livestock will be blessed. Your barns and everything you put your hand to will be blessed. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity. So believing that riches were a sign of divine favor, they believed that those who were rich had become so because of obedience to God. In other words, the rich were viewed as the people uh, who were living in the most obedience to God. And so, uh, this is among the the community, the, the religious community. And so, believing that riches were a sign of divine favor, they believed that those who were rich had done so because they were so obedient. And so, when Jesus said that it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom, their minds are blown. It doesn't compute from their perspective it's it's basically to them it would have been jesus saying that the very best people in the world have no hope of eternal life the most obedient have no hope of eternal life and of course that's exactly what jesus did mean exactly what he did mean but it blew their mind and so their answer is then who can be saved so understand all of the bad news before us right now it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven people cannot do anything to inherit eternal life even the very best people the most righteous the most obedient those who have done the best at obeying the commandments, even those people have no hope of eternal life. This is what Jesus wanted the rich young man to understand, and what he wants all of us to understand. We cannot do anything to get eternal life, it is impossible for us completely and totally impossible. And the truth is, you have to embrace this bad news. Before you can ever get to the good news. You have to embrace this bad news. Before you're ready to receive the encouraging truth. You have to. So all of this bad news brings us to the good news. Who then can be saved? And Jesus gives the answer. With man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. Amen. Man cannot do anything to get eternal life, but God can do for men and women what's impossible for men and women to do for themselves. And this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. We can't do anything to secure salvation for ourselves, but Christ has secured salvation for all who will simply trust in Him. And so this means that receiving eternal life isn't about what we have to do. It is about what Christ has already done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 communicates the gospel as clearly and succinctly as anywhere in the Bible. And here's what it says. For by grace you have been saved through faith And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Let me break that down really quickly. We're saved by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. That means that He saves us even though we don't deserve it. We're not good, we don't earn it. It's the exact opposite we don't deserve it. But he saves us anyway. It also means that he does it all. We add nothing. And Paul drives that point home when he wrote that it's not a result of works. This means you can't get eternal life by what you do. And you don't keep eternal life by what you do. You get saved and you receive eternal life because of God's unmerited favor and you remain saved throughout your life because of God's unmerited favor. It's all God, it's none you, and it's none me. Why? So that no one can boast. God wants the glory for what God has done. You're not the one that secures eternal life for yourself. I'm not the one who secures eternal life for myself. Christ lived a sinless life in perfect obedience to God. Died a sacrificial death for the sins of all men and women. And was raised to life because his sacrifice fully satisfied God's just demands against sin. And so we're saved by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast, so that God gets the glory that is due him. And Paul also tells us how we access this saving grace. It's through faith. It's not by works. It's by faith. We admit what the rich young man was unwilling to admit. That we haven't kept God's commands. And that that's left us under God's condemnation. And that has left us standing in need of a savior. And so instead of trying to earn our way with God. We admit that we cannot earn our way with God. And we turn to Christ to do for us what we cannot do do for ourselves. Unlike the rich young ruler, we come to see Jesus as a greater need in our lives than anything else, including our wealth, including our privilege. And so we turn away from everything that keeps us from Jesus and we give ourselves fully to him, receiving the salvation that is available in him alone. Salvation is really as simple as trusting God to do for us what we've come to realize we can't do for ourselves. Save us and give us eternal life. The most famous verse in the Bible tells us about this. John three sixteen assures us that whoever will simply believe in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. We hear this We take God at his word. We believe in Jesus and we're saved by grace through faith. These are the encouraging truths that can make it to your refrigerator. What's impossible for me is possible with God. I am saved by God's grace, not my works. And here's an encouraging accompanying thought to that. If God can save a rich person, which is as impossible as a camel going through the eye of a needle, that means that God can do absolutely anything, including taking care of you, no matter what challenge you're facing in your life right now. If God can save those who have no hope of salvation, he can deliver you from depression. If he can save those who have no hope of salvation, he can heal your body. If he can save those who have no hope of salvation, that means that he can see you through anything and everything that life brings your way, even when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If God can save those who cannot be saved, he can even do what we can't imagine. Remove the sting of death. In Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven, God said this, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is there anything too hard for me? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. There's nothing too hard for God. With God, all things are possible. These truths are really encouraging if we will receive them. And they absolutely are relevant to our everyday lives. I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. (laughs) But I fail God quite a lot. And because I fail God quite often, I at times struggle with condemnation over those failures. And guess what? God does not want us living under condemnation. And so when I feel that way, when I have failed God again, and, and the enemy has been successful at manipulating proper conviction into inappropriate condemnation, when that happens, I can turn to this story of the rich young ruler. I remember the question of the disciples, and I remember that I never earned my salvation in the first place because I couldn't, and I remember that what's impossible for me is possible with God, and I remind myself again that my salvation is all about him it's not about me. And so this verse encourages me. And so I can take my little verse, with God all things are possible, and put it on my fridge. And as I come home, having failed God yet again, getting ready to drown my sorrows, in a Haritos, I look at my fridge, and I'm reminded, with God, all things are possible. And I remember the context of that. And so I am reminded, my salvation is not on me, it's on Him. And then my heart is filled with praise. Condemnation lifts, and I just thank Him for doing for me what I could not do for myself. What do I do with this now? Okay. (laughs) When I feel under condemnation, I turn to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And I remember that I am saved by grace through faith, not works. Again, I remember that salvation is all him and none me. My condemnation begins to fade away. My heart's filled with appreciation for what Christ has done, and my soul overflows into praise and thanksgiving for what Christ has done for me. So the same thing plays out again. I can put this one on my fridge, and I can be reminded when I'm at a low point that this is what God has done for me. I can be encouraged in my everyday life. And then there's another benefit to to verses like this. As I've already shared it, It has another application. I remember that if God can save me, that God can do literally anything. If he can save me, he can take care of me. No matter what life is throwing at me. And so I'm encouraged. Friends, I want you to know today that no matter how deep you've gone into sin. Now look, around here we, we talk about sin a lot. Uh, at least I perceive that we do, because sin's a big deal. And God doesn't want his people sinning. And so I challenge you about sin. We talk about it. We, we try to hold a high standard around here. But listen, you need to know that no matter how deep you've gone into sin, God's grace is greater than all of your sin. In all of our challenging to live right for God, we are never suggesting that you're trying to earn your way with God because it is impossible to earn your way with God. God has got enough grace for everything that you have ever done wrong. If you will just turn to him in faith and receive the gift of eternal life that God offers all who trust in Christ. Some of us here today, I believe, need to do that. We've been living under the false notion that being good is what's needed for eternal life. We've, we've been moralistic, therapeutic deists. But friend, you're not good. And you can never be good enough to get eternal life. It can only be received by faith in Jesus. You have to come to see the futility of salvation through works. You have to come to the point where you recognize that you need a Savior and you see Jesus as being that Savior, the Savior of the world and your Savior, and you turn to Him in faith. And here's what the Bible assures us. That He will never turn away anyone who comes to Him doesn't matter what you've done doesn't matter how many times you've done it doesn't matter how awful it is or or you know maybe yours are respectable sins you still need Jesus you still need Jesus your respectable sins have still separated you from salvation separated you from eternal life And so whatever it is, the Bible assures that if you will come to him, he will not turn you away. And so I appeal to you today, if you have never done it before, if you've been living under this false impression, turn to Christ in faith. He is the only source of eternal life. And for those of us here today who've already done that, I just ask you, Continue in it. You started in grace. Continue in grace. It's all God's grace. Don't be tempted into a performance-based religion that sucks the life out of your relationship with God. Realize that obedience, good works, it is the fruit of a life surrendered to Christ. It is not the way you stay saved. When you start to think that, it becomes so toxic to your relationship with God. Don't be like the Christians in Galatians to whom Paul had to write. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? We started in grace. Let's continue in grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. That's the only way any of us get to heaven. It's all grace. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Greater than the sin I committed before coming to faith. Greater than the sin I've committed since coming to faith. And greater than every sin that I will commit and you will commit for the rest of our lives lives. God's grace is greater. And I love this little saying that I heard from Pastor Russell Johnson in Lancaster, Ohio, many, many years ago. God's grace is greater than your disgrace. God's grace is greater than your disgrace. Let's stand.